21st Century Renaissance. Episode 1, The Other AI, Why Aesthetic Intelligence Matters, with Pauline Brown. For the first interview of my new podcast, I speak to Pauline Brown. Pauline is the former chairman of LVMH, Moit Annecy Louis Vuitton North America, and has held senior executive positions at other leading companies, including Estee Lauder, Bain, and the Carlyle Group. In 2016, she launched her own practice as an advisor, lecturer, and author. Her breakthrough book, Aesthetic Intelligence, is based on the course she introduced at Harvard Business School and now teaches at Columbia Business School, filling a void for the topic in business school education. Pauline is currently a board member of America's leading luxury retailer, Neiman Marcus, and a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute. She hosts the popular lifestyle show, Tastemakers, which airs on the American broadcasting channel, Sirius XM. In this interview, we talk about what aesthetic intelligence is, why it's important for nearly every company, regardless of industry, and why it matters to us as individuals, both for our personal and professional lives. We talk about a new digital divide and its implications on our senses and on business strategy. We also talk a little about her course and her new e-learning platform, Aesthetic Intelligence Labs, which I plan to join soon. Pauline brings to the conversation not only her wealth of knowledge and experience, but also a critical and reflective view of luxury, fashion, and business in general, as well as life wisdom and her unique self, which she's never afraid of being in the often stodgy corporate world. I'm thrilled to have her as my first guest, and I hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Well, welcome, Pauline, to my new podcast. Um, so I finished your book in about three or four days, which is a record for me. <laughs> I'm Either that or the book was way too easy to read. Maybe I <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's um, very insightful. I'm not usually a slow. Re- uh, I'm usually a slow reader. Um, but the speed means uh, it shows uh, how engaging the content was. Thank you. you know, <laughs> good writers are able to establish or trigger connection from their readers, even though they don't personally know each other. And I certainly felt that. I felt this uh, connection from afar. And as I, yeah, so, so I picture that our life paths kind of, if I gesture with my hand, kind of went like this. Mm. Crisscross. So, yeah, we started, you know, um, we started on the opposite ends of the, the globe. You're a, a New Yorker, mm-hmm. a New York Jew with a Central European heritage. Mm-hmm. I'm from China with a Manchurian blood on my mom's side. Um, we skirted each other in New York around the times of time of our MBAs. Mm-hmm. Um, I came to the U.S. and spent two years in New York and Washington D.C. just at uh, the same time as you went to Wharton, mm-hmm. and and then I think you went back to New York, and I came to California when I uh, where I get uh, my my MBA from from Stanford. 
-hmm. And then I stayed on this coast. And so we were on the opposite coasts with very different industries and very different experiences. But then somehow, as you said, we developed the common, many common interests, ideologies, and curiosities. And now we're sharing this common time and space to explore them. <laughs> Thank you. That's a, it's a, it's a very um, heartwarming and um, most original introduction. Most people get into the bio very quickly and I always prefer something that talks about the journey. Um, but the other point I'll make is what I have been pushing for, which way predates the book, um, this idea of bringing more beauty into business with in mind that business is a big part of the world. It's not divorced from the world. To me, this is universal. This is not about, you know, this is not about people who want to be in the luxury world, who want to, you know, work with designers. I think every industry has opportunity to lift the human condition. And very few actually consider that value add. They might think of it as a bit of a sort of tokenism. So, so my mission here is to take something you've expressed coming from a different part of the world originally, living now in a different part of the country and with very different industry experience that still resonates with you. You didn't need to be working you know, for the likes of LVMH or Estee Lauder in order for this to make sense. So, uh, so that, that was my goal and you have um, given me a bit more confidence that it's, it's resonating. Oh yeah, it's definitely resonating. So, so when you talk about your family background, uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm Chinese with Manchurian background and that was, uh, you, you talked about your grandmothers and, mm -hmm. and your grandparents, how they're influenced on you. Even though we're from very different cultural backgrounds, there has been an appreciation of beauty and style in my family. My, my grandma was a seamstress um, oh. and she worked for a um, tailor shop, a Japanese tailor shop when um, the region was in Japanese occupation. And she has this innate uh, sense of beauty, always made beautiful clothes for, for us. And she had three daughters who didn't um, inherit her skills, but they also, also had this um, great sense of style and beauty. The three sisters are known in, in my hometown. So my mm. mom, and my sister, my own sister as well, probably they're more stylish than, than I am. And so that really personally resonated, like you said, that universality mm -hmm. of, of this human uh, appreciation for, for beauty. Yes, thank you. The other thing though, that your story is uh, bringing to light is that the sense of style uh, is shaped by a lot of different factors, but one of them are these um, maternal lineage, this, these sort of influences that come from your mother, from your grandmother, from stories of your family and your history and your migration and the cultures, not just where you're living today, but maybe the culture that's in the backdrop of your, of your family history. I mean, and, and I spend a lot of time uh, above and beyond the book thinking about how does taste get shaped? Why, why is mm -hmm. my taste quite different than my sister's? We, in our case, lived in the same house. We have the same parents. But uh, we have other uh, differences, and that has come into bear in terms of how we express ourselves. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Definitely. And so speaking of the book, I, I loved the anecdote that you started with. So instead of me repeating it, it's probably the best for you to tell that scene and up to where when you were proposing your course to Harvard and mm -hmm. um, up to the reaction from uh, Francis, um, yeah. hearing exactly what you had in mind. You know what? I wasn't exaggerating. The, uh, the story went as follows. First of all, I had no 
uh, aspiration or vision of ever being a professor. That was not on the table. I had, my entire career was in uh, various large global brands. I uh, knew that I wanted to take a time out from being an operator. I mm. was sort of figuring out at that, page, at that stage exactly how I would structure my time and still stay relevant and useful and uh, gainfully employed in some form. Uh, toward the end of my tenure at LVMH, I was asked to give a lecture at HBS. And I went up, uh, it was part of a, a retail series. And I, uh, I always enjoyed talking to students. It makes me feel young. I think it's their, their sort of fresh energy. Uh, and I more and more, as I get more senior in my career, felt that I had something to offer that I wish I had had some access to when I was a student. My professors didn't come from the world in which I had come from at that point. So we were sitting down after the series and I sort of, you know, off the cuff, I said, I, I've always kind of wanted to teach, but I want to teach something that I think is completely void at business school, really absent. Mm. And she said, well, what is it? And I was like, well, it's, it's, I don't want to teach something about luxury management. I don't want to teach about brand building. I don't want to teach marketing, even though those would be the logical subject mm -hmm. matter from where I came. I said, it's something much bigger and more profound than that. She said, what is it? And I said, well, it's kind of like the business of aesthetics. And uh, she said, whoa, I love it. How do you spell it? <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and, and that was the first time I ever had to spell it and I've never spelled it wrong ever since. My point <laughs> being, and I'm a, I'm a bit of a wordsmith. I do care about words. I was an English major as an undergraduate. And I, I picked that word, even though it was a bit spontaneous, but I, but I really settled on that word very um, thoughtfully because aesthetics, as you know, from the book is not about simply beauty and it's mm -hmm. not about visual elegance. Mm -hmm. um, it is something much more um, humanistic. It's really, it comes from the Greek word aesthetikos, which is about perception of the senses. So an aesthetic experience is one that lifts you sensorially. And mm -hmm. oftentimes it may be lifting you without having any visual impact. It could be a beautiful concert that you're listening to, uh, a wonderful meal that has the aromas and the, uh, you know, the, the curation. Uh, and the preparation and the temperature and all the things that come together to make a, a, a meal um, delectable, that is a, an aesthetic experience. So what I like about this word aesthetics, which I've never given up on, is <laughs> it allows people who have different ways of arriving or expressing their tastes to call on different sensibilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so her reaction really sums up the, um, the state of aesthetics in business or lack thereof. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> and I also appreciate the assignment that you give um, Harvard students. You ask them to write reviews for, for restaurants and yeah. they all came back with uh, business consultant type of, type of reports. With, Very um, narratives. Yeah, words. And and... My directive to them, because I didn't want to read a 500 page report. I had 100 students at the time. I didn't want it to be, you know, the great American novel. I said to them, in the, in the constraints that you have, which was a certain number of word count, I think, I, your job is to make me feel what you felt at your most, at, at your most um, enlivened during that, that meal, during mm -hmm. that restaurant mm -hmm. experience. And I wanted them to be connected, not just with the 
emotional experience because we don't go to restaurants for nutrition. We can do nutrition much more efficiently. We go there for other reasons, for social and for mm -hmm. sensorial. Mm -hmm. And what I find is that business people in general and Harvard MBAs in particular are really <laughs> bad at drawing on the language of emotional experience. It's very clinical. It's very objective, very analytic. Um, you know, they've been trained now for years leading up to their MBA even to sort of diagnose things in a depersonalized and almost uh, scientific way. And, uh, and that works if you're, you know, a data analyst um, or many kinds of engineers. It doesn't work if you're trying to appeal to people on a personal or an emotional level. And so it's almost a different way of communicating that mm -hmm. on top of everything else I'm saying is not being taught at business school, mm -hmm. that particular skill set yeah. is definitely not being taught. Yeah, I have a lot to relate, relate on that. Not only our business, HBS graduates, you know, Stanford and, and the, the business community at large, we yes. taught to just um, value above the neck. Yes. Um, what, what is considered to be intellect and, and all in the brain and in the mind, mm -hmm. ignoring our body and the senses. So mm -hmm. I, I have been actually leading you know, workshops and, and play shops. And we had two seasons of play shops uh, during the uh, pandemic, focusing on senses. Mm -hmm. And also there, there's one just exclusively focusing on senses. Mm -hmm. And the others are exploring different senses through uh, arts-based learning. Mm -hmm. But I frame this as for, for well-being and for mm -hmm. emotional intelligence. I, I use these uh, experiential activities in some of the corporate workshops as mm -hmm. well. And one of, the, one of the participants said, oh, I had never realized how raspberry tasted. It mm -hmm. raspberry tasted like that. Mm -hmm. um, but even for emotional intelligence, this is kind of experimental or I guess edgy. My corporate, you know, my client contacts would squirm when I describe there would be sensory exercises because they would feel that this is beneath them. You know, that would be- but The reason that um, I'm putting my glasses on is I, today posted on my Instagram story, a quote by a woman named Diane Ackerin. She's um, I wrote a book called A Natural History of the Senses. And the quote is, one of the real tests of writers is how well they write about smells. If they mm -hmm. can't describe the scent of sanctity in a church, can you trust them to describe the suburbs of the heart? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so you, you define aesthetics as the arousal of senses and, and you spoke about something that is something bigger and more profound. So what would you, would you say is the deeper essence of why senses are important? Well, so uh, first of all, let me say um, aesthetic experiences are about arousal of the senses, aesthetic intelligence is really about shaping other people's or, or, uh, senses. So it's about taste, right? Mm -hmm. How do you express mm -hmm. it? And why do I think that that's important? I mean, number one, because the in, in business, it's important in life we know because who wants to live in Maoist China when you can live with great art and culture and community and faith and all the things that throughout history have enhanced the human condition. Mm -hmm. So we know it's important in humanity, which is why we have right. museums and why we have monuments and so forth. Why is it important in business? Because nobody yes. talks about business. 
Well, reason number one is that the vast majority, and I want to say probably 90% of what we spend our money on mm -hmm. is not purely based on this rational assessment of needs, of functionality, of sort of utility or cost-benefit mm -hmm. analysis. Um, if we just were to be that rational in how we spend, whether it's for a t-shirt or for a house or for a vacation, we could do things much cheaper. We could spend much, much less money than we do. Mm -hmm. What we're spending on are how things make us feel. About on average, about 85% of the ultimate buying decision of one brand over another, of one particular product over another, maybe even one category over another, is how mm -hmm. it makes that person feel and whether mm -hmm. that feeling connects with an aspiration. Mm -hmm. That being the case, why aren't businesses more empathic toward how their consumers or customers feel? Why are they always designing things with a very rational assessment? Why are marketers spending almost 100% of their energy on the things that might account for 15 or so percent of the decision factor, which mm -hmm. is the features and the function? So that's one reason. Um, it goes beyond that, though. It isn't just about gaining uh, the, uh, the, 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 or winning the customer. Mm -hmm. It's about um, earning a relationship. We don't have relationships with products. Products are anonymous, uh, inanimate. We have relationships um, with an idea, an ideal, an identity. We have relationships with people um, and great brands step in and play a bit of a role uh, in that relationship. You feel connected, again, for a variety of different reasons, which we can get into. They're mostly psychological in nature. And in order to do that, you have to be expressing something, again, that speaks to people at their core, at their heart. Um, I would say another reason is so many businesses are running on um, such tight margins. And the minute there's a recession or the minute there's a disruptive technology that intermediate, they, they, if they don't go out of business, they certainly um, lose their value very quickly. There isn't inherent value in, in what they're doing. Um, when you do what I'm proposing well, it gives you so much pricing power as we saw with all the LVMH brands or the Estee Lauder brands on the cosmetic end that you can actually reinvest in your business. And you don't just reinvest in coming out with the next you know, utility-based product. You reinvest in the communication, you reinvest in the service, you reinvest in that human experience. And when you're, when you're operating on a really tight margin and you don't have the, the, um, you don't have the, the ability to, um, you know, to, to, to um, and, uh, elevate your prices, you're never gonna be able to offer more than that commodity I just described. So, so I think that it's, it's, it's um, that if done well, and that's always, the first step is believing in it. The second mm -hmm. step is, is institutionalizing it, starting with the top. And the third is, um, is, is keeping it going, is keeping the machine. It's a little bit like, a, a, when I think of um, strong aesthetic propositions, it's a little bit like a strong athlete. The best athletes in the world, the Olympic athletes, often have some, born with some advantage, but the real reason that they're at that level is because they worked really hard, they trained. They had the good fortune of training in the right place with the right people. A good athlete, no matter how many medals he or she wins, if they stop training tomorrow, 
and then one year later try to go into the competition, they wouldn't even rank in the top 100, no matter how good they were four years ago or one year ago. So my point is aesthetics is like a muscle and mm -hmm. you can build it wherever your starting point and you can also, it can atrophy. You can rebuild it. But generally the strongest athletes are those that are consistent and disciplined and have uh, committed to long periods mm -hmm. of time. So I always tell people, if you believe in what I'm saying and you're prepared to invest in it, be prepared that this is a lifelong learning exercise too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In the book you say, in the absence of aesthetics, most businesses are susceptible to potentially fatal challenges. In other words, when a company's aesthetics fail, so does the company. That, that is a pretty large claim. And I, would, I can imagine many eyebrows would be raised by that um, in, in the, the business world. Um, and I'll caveat, if I were yeah. the CEO of Exxon, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that line would mean all that much to me. You know, do I think mm -hmm. that there's a bit of a relationship between, you know, when a, a mobile gas station or a shell gas station? A little bit, but it's it's so uh, marginal relative to proximity and mm -hmm. the, the price of miles per gallon. So, but, so I think there are industries that can get away for mm -hmm. at least until fossil fuel gets away, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is happening. I think that there are industries for whom this doesn't speak to. I mm -hmm. think there's so few and far between. I think the mm -hmm. vast majority. Mm -hmm. um, and do I think that, that that comment raised eyebrows? What my experience is when people hear it, mm -hmm. they get it in concept. Mm -hmm. But the reason I called the book Aesthetic Intelligence and the reason I started uh, my online platform called Aesthetic Intelligence Labs, and I did not call it what I called my business class, which was business of aesthetics, the mm -hmm. reason is because it's one thing to understand it and say, okay, I, maybe I need to invest more in my uh, ad agency, mm -hmm. or maybe mm -hmm. I need to put a few more um, you know, seats in my uh, creative department. And it's another thing to say, to have the commitment to say, I need to work on this, whether I'm mm -hmm. a CFO, a right. COO, supply chain, everybody plays a role in this. It's a value okay. system that has to go all the way to the top. And I think that causes more discomfort than yeah. the generic concept that this matters mm -hmm. in business. Mm -hmm. Because it, it really goes into your, your, your values, the, your, like you said, the raison d'etre. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the meaning and purpose of your business and, and a lot of businesses have lost that. And so that you're saying is, is the, the, where the comfort li uh, discomfort lies. So, so can you give some examples just so that to, to bring it more concrete to people where um, companies, so, so this concept, either made or broke a company, especially outside of, let's say, luxury or food and you know, hospitality where it's easier to understand or maybe even outside of creative industries? Well, I, I can give you countless uh, examples um, and I'm always coming up with new ones. So let me give you like three extremely different sectors and different size, different history, different. But before I tell you the first one, let me, um, let me pick up a point I talk about in the book, which is to be aesthetic doesn't have to be beautiful. It can actually be in some ways unpleasant. That can be exciting too. In French, mm -hmm. there's the term, which you may remember I talk about called jolie laide. Jolie is the French word for pretty and laide is the French word for ugly. And mm -hmm. jolie laide is used often to describe a beautiful woman's face. And what mm -hmm. makes her beautiful is that there's something a little bit off Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the proportions, maybe it's mm -hmm. a gap in the tooth, 
-hmm. that makes her interesting and it mm -hmm. makes her that much more beautiful and memorable. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I say this because I, the, the first example I wanna give you is um, when I was coming of age, um, as a young child, I loved ice cream. I have a sweet tooth, I love ice cream. And the pr most premium ice cream going back to the 70s, early 80s that you could come up with was a Haagen-Dazs. It was um, you know, sold in these um, sort of beautifully packaged, almost like a jewelry kit, uh, pint-sized. Everything else was in the big box, the quart box. Mm -hmm. um, and it was very fine. The, if you got, for example, um, mint chocolate chip, it was very finely ground and everything mm -hmm. was very fine and subtle about it. The vanilla, everything was subtle. Mm -hmm. And then um, on the heels of that, you have a brand called Ben and Jerry's. Mm -hmm. And Ben and Jerry's, while it was served in the same shape pint, that cylinder pint, was the antithesis of Haagen-Dazs in its uh, sort of sensorial experience. Uh, ben Cohen had a form of synesthesia where he actually had very dull sense of smell and taste. He was born with it. And because of that, he did two things uh, that reinvented what we think of as acceptable for a premium ice cream. The first is that he made them ultra sweet. He overflavored them. He put together ingredients that normally wouldn't have been with this chunky monkey. And, and so it was a lot of different- Cherry Garcia we recently had. <laughs> that was a bestseller. And then the other thing he did is because he couldn't fully taste the flavor, he wanted more texture, what they call mouthfill. So instead of this finely minced chocolate or nuts, everything was very, uh, voluminous and chunky, and there was a lot of textural combinations and contrast. My point being, you know, the person who loved Ben and Jerry's might have been looking for a very different experience than the person who loved uh, a gelato or a, a Haagen-Dazs. But, and it was such a subtle change, because as I said, it was still sitting on the same shelves in the same stores. Obviously the visual representation was quite different and almost amateur-like, which was part of its charm. And the naming was, was, was colorful and whimsical. But I think the most important thing is he took something that we had a formula for mm. and he kind of recrafted mm -hmm. what good can feel like. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in so doing, and there was humor in the line and other personalities mm -hmm. that we developed a relationship with this that went beyond, above and beyond when we were just sitting there eating ice cream. Mm -hmm. And that is in a crowded market. It is not easy mm -hmm. to be an upstart in ice cream. Go down any supermarket in the country in that frozen section, and you'll see there is no empty space. There are so many brands. And that was a time where the big brands were prevailing. And this was a, an upstart from Vermont. Another example, um, Disney. This is a much bigger company. It's been around a lot longer than Ben and Jerry's. Disney, and I'm just gonna talk for a minute about the parks, the theme parks, which are very expensive. I don't know if you read, it recently came out in the paper that at the current price because of inflation and travel, soaring travel costs, average family of four will spend five to 10,000 for a few days there. Five oh days. my God. Very expensive in the US. And wow. that's a middle, middle class family. This is not geared toward the Uber luxury, right? This middle, and that could be, that could be close to more than 10% of their annual income. So why do mm. they go? And why do they keep going back? When you leave a Disney park, you leave with nothing. It's not like you leave a Vuitton store and you've got your bag, right? Or Chanel uh, count, uh, cosmetic counter and you've got your lipstick. You leave with nothing, except you leave with a memory. Mm -hmm. And what Disney does so well 
is it creates a series of experiences and little moments, as well as a few big moments, but mostly accumulation of little moments that are so colorful and so delightful and so evolving because there are families that go back every year or every other year for years until their kids are in college. And you say, well, I get you go once, but why would you keep going back? Because they keep evolving it and they keep delighting people in new and refreshing ways. And there are so many moments of delight and what you leave when you leave a Disney park is with memories and memories and anticipation, meaning the appetite to go back is about 50% of the perceived value of a Disney vacation. So when somebody says, I spent $5,000 for five days at the parks with my family and that was a lot, you know what? They actually spent 2,500 at the parks, spent the other 2,500 in some combination of the six weeks before they got on the plane mm. and the six months after they were still talking about that trip. So that's another experience. It is, is and, and to the point where I, you couldn't even compare a Disney vacation with a day going to Adventureland Park. It is not even a theme park, it's an immersive experience. So it's kind of created almost its own sector within mm -hmm. the entertainment world. Uh, another example, uh, again, I wanna stay out of luxury. Um, oh, there's so many examples. People ask me, well, can you actually do this online? Can you, do, can you actually create digital aesthetics? And I talk a lot about that, especially in my class. I now teach at Columbia and everyone is of course consumed with, with uh, D to C and with digital representation. And I say there's limitation. It's never gonna be as good if it's a standalone online proposition. But I can give you an example of a company that's done it as well as I could imagine anyone doing it within the constraints. And that is Airbnb. Mm -hmm. Airbnb, um, like Disney, it sells nothing. I mean, it's a matchmaker. It has no inventory, right? It's just brokering. Um, when Airbnb did not invent this concept of uh, home or, or room rentals. In fact, uh, 12 years or so before Airbnb was even launched, you had Craigslist. Craigslist was mm -hmm. doing exactly that. Nobody, unless they were incredibly price sensitive or desperate, would go on Craigslist and they certainly, if you did get a room on Craigslist, you didn't expect it to be a joyful experience. There were a number of other companies that launched around the same time or even earlier than Airbnb, HomeAway, VRBO. VRBO. Why, why did Airbnb become you know, the giant in the space? Why is Airbnb's market cap to the tune of about um, 20X what Craigslist is when it was, launched so much later? And why is it's probably 4X what, uh, what um, uh, Barry Diller's group, which they own now uh, HR, uh, VRBO is part of that group. The reason that the, the, the founders, the two founders of Airbnb came out of Rhode Island School of Design. They were not technologists. Yeah, I was gonna say that, yeah. <laughs> and they understood um, from the get-go that to solve this problem, they had to use the elements of design, in their case, mostly visual design, but even around the placement of photography, the word choices, um, the for style and form and voice of communication with both the, uh, the renters and the, you know, and the uh, customers. They had to use all of those tools to foster trust and to create excitement. And they did it brilliantly. So that would be another example where again, their competency, they don't sell anything that I couldn't buy any other number of ways. 
I could also still stay at a hotel, but they were able to create magic in their communication in their messaging and in their um, visual expression. <laughs> so you, you give two, I guess, physical world examples, uh, historic, not like really far out historically, but at least in, in modern history. And then one contemporary, a new, I guess, less than 20 year old um, story, Airbnb. Mm-hmm. which is a digital company that brings up um, uh, two, two questions I'd like to discuss with you. So one is, um, so among the things that you, that really resonated um, uh, that, that you mentioned as upcoming trends is this digital expansion where I am in Silicon Valley. It's, you know, where we teach what we teach at uh, Stanford. It's a mm-hmm. lot about digital transformation and Airbnb is certainly a stalwart example, more so from how do you transform digitally rather than the aesthetic angle. But, you know, CS consumer experience is, is certainly one of that. But what I wanted to discuss with you is that, that you point out this two emerging worlds, um, which really resonated out of this whole digital expansion, transformation, whatever you want to call it. And one is this, the automation the artificial intelligence, robotics, etc. And that seems to be unrelenting. <laughs> the other is this craving for, for, for more meaning, uh, relationships, human connections that are really um, the core part of our humanity, which senses are rooted in. So, so I thought, you know, I haven't thought of this um, that way, but really, it really spoke to me. Mm. So what, as consumers can expect looking forward um, that may be, you know, products or services that may be going uh, a little away from the, the everything going digital, you know, mm-hmm. how, how that may be evolving or even uh, so, changing. I, and I just want to, I want to um, actually slightly tweak uh, the way okay. you characterized it. I don't see these as two parallel worlds, although in some ways they are. I see the more um, emphasis there is on the um, URL, on the the all things digital, the more unmet need and yearning there is for what has made us human for thousands of years, which Mm is IRL. So they are not independent variables in the sense that we have spent so much energy in the last, particularly the last, over the last 20 years, but I'd say particularly in the last 10, um, you know, with, 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 with this being an extension of our brain, that there's a part of our human condition that is, um, is, is, is really thirsting for reactivation. And it is opening the way, you know, for experiences that are multisensorial that are immersive, not in the metaverse sense of the word, because that's still not, you know, that that form of immersive to me is at best like seeing a great movie. If you said to me, you know, um, I mean, the first time I went to some of my favorite films like Gone with the Wind, of course, I was utterly wrapped for two or three hours. If I had the choice to take my best, my favorite film of all time and watch it as if it were extended to 24 hours, I'd say no way. I cannot sit in a theater, in a dark theater, watching a screen, listening to sort of that form of uh, fabricated or, or digitized sound for 24 hours. I can do it 
very happily for two to three hours. And so what's happening is for the, what maybe used to be a few minutes a day and then turned into a few mm -hmm. hours a day and now might be 12 hours a day, with, especially with COVID and we're working and we're doing this interview remotely. The, for every hour we're spending doing this, it is like stepping into that movie and stopping the part of our life that gives us the sense of balance, uh, the physical gratification, uh, the human connection that is much more profound if we were having this conversation face to face. I think yeah. it would be quite different. We're making as we're, we're making do with it because we're practical and we're efficient, but it is um, it is not we can't fool ourselves. A little bit like if you were um, going to go on a diet and you said, okay, well this is my, my nutritional needs, and I broke it down as a scientific experiment, and I said I need certain amount of vitamin A, certain amount of vitamin C, I need a certain amount of volume so that I don't feel hungry. And, and you just do, you could survive. Many people who are in the hospital for months on end survive on, you know, on such artificial diets or uh, supplemented diets, but you would not enjoy it. You would not enjoy life and you would not enjoy your meals. And we, we need to, the only thing that makes life worth living and makes us look forward to the next day and makes us creative and, um, and, 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 and romantic and imaginative, all of that is emanated in the things that give us joy. So mm -hmm. I go back to, so let, so your question is, how is this going to play out? Well, actually I'll add something before I answer. So, so you, you, you give a different meaning to digital divide rather than the haves and have nots. You're, you're saying the divide is now the wants and do not wants. So it's, a, it's a defined not by access, but by desirability. Yes. So how would that play out, um, affect you know, not only what's coming, so as a consumer, what you can expect in terms of new shifts in products and services? And on the flip side, what would you uh, tell companies? Do, can they, do they need to target one or the other, or is there a different uh, optimal way of serving both? Well, so I'll give you a real world example. Uh, I serve on the board of Neiman Marcus Group. Neiman Marcus is the largest uh, retailer in North America of luxury goods. Neiman Marcus has an online business, an e-commerce business that does over a billion dollars in sales. And unlike Farfetch and Net-A-Porter and a lot of the others, it actually makes money. It doesn't make as much money online as it makes in stores, but it also isn't operating like a pure play where its customer acquisition is nearly as high. Um, when I think of that business model, you know, it's gotten to a size where I always say, you're not going to win by playing the Amazon game. The market may reward us as we have outsized growth in our online, but our online will never be what we're essentially selling. We're selling two things that Amazon will never be able to do. And so the point number one is you do what others can't do. And if, if you're offering just a smarter algorithm, there'll be an even smarter algorithm that'll get, and, and product is not gonna be your limitation here. So what we're, where we're winning, number one, we're winning because we're creating an integrated experience where we can no longer look at, are you online or are you offline? If you're customer centric, we're everything, we're both. And my relationship as a shopper with Neiman Marcus has to, has to have a certain seamlessness between the two, which a very few companies have done well. I think we're probably in like the first or second inning 
of how this couldn't play out over time. But where we really win is in creating an in-store experience that people want to go to. And they want to go there, not because the chances of finding something my size are better than if I try it online and I'm you know, disappointed when it comes and it's not my fit. It's because I can discover things in the store that I would never discover if I was doing uh, a Google search. It's because I can have the support of a person in the store who can give me advice so that when I maybe even found that skirt I was looking for, I could have some ideas or some inspiration of, a, of, of, of how I can finish it and pair it. Um, I can be in a store that more and more in our Neiman Marcus stores, we're putting bars and lounges and coffee areas because the experience shouldn't just be about buying clothes. It should be a form of retailtainment. I've come, uh, maybe there's a pop-up that is short-lived and it's a theme and it's seasonal. Maybe there's uh, a friend I can meet for lunch or something I can do just to take a break. Uh, so the, the, the experience of it has to be more than the transactional, which I think is one of the many rare areas that most retailers, bricks and mortar retailers have gone wrong. They, they were so consumed for about 50 years with productivity per square foot. And we as a country, as a country are so overstored. I'd say as a world, we're overstored, we're overmauled. And, and we're selling things that people don't need. But what they do need is to be, uh, go back, they need to be delighted. Women and men, increasingly men, want to feel and look stylish. Uh, this quest for discovery, the enjoyment that comes from discovering, even if you won't buy it. I like going in stores sometimes because it's a bit of an anthropological, I can touch things and see things. And I, you know, I have a daughter who's uh, going to college. It's interesting for me to see what her generation is flocking to and staying away from. So. That human piece of it will never be done online, never. And mm -hmm. does that mean that Neiman Marcus should steer clear of all things digital? Of course not. First of all, it already has a big business online. Second of all, it could be very complimentary. Um, thirdly, there are times where I just want a replenishment of my creme de la mer. I don't want to go all the way to a Neiman Marcus store for that one item. And I should have an easy option, but we're not gonna win on that convenience factor. So that's mm -hmm. my view, the best of the, of the um, in, in all of these categories that are inessential and where, where, where um, uh, Amazon can continue to win in addition to just being you know, fast and plentiful and transparent and you know, cost-effective is, is, is they can supply all my necessities. Why, uh, I have no reason to buy cleaning fluid anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And it gives me no joy, even in the best store environment. So I, 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 I say my hat's off to Amazon, but when I see, and I've seen this about a dozen times in the last 10 years that Amazon is focusing on beauty and Amazon is focusing on fashion and Amazon wants to go into luxury. I say, you know what? Good money after bad. They're not gonna do it. It's, it's, a, it's a different, it's a different um, mindset uh, that is required having spent my whole career on that other side of the fence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Neiman Marcus is a, um, a large, you know, famous brand established company you you did also give in the book examples of um, um, small emerging companies that are specifically meeting the need of of this human craving for whatever that senses might be whether it's touch most, or most companies in this country and in the world are small they have less than 10 employees 
they are, um, you know, might be described a little bit pejoratively as mom and pop. And I think you can do very well. I'm actually very well as a high performing small business that isn't chasing sales, that's deep in the community. People don't live in countries, they live in neighborhoods, right? People, and, and, and people don't, you know, have relationships with thousands of people. The average person has probably 150 meaningful relationships. And so what I would say to a small business is go deep, but do it well. Offer something in the form of service or product, or ideally some combination of two of both that feels special and unique and authentically you. And this idea of aesthetic intelligence is not about it. The worst thing you can do is copy anyone else, no matter how good. When I see that Microsoft is opening stores and, uh, and they took the best of, of Apple design, Apple store designs, and made it their version of Microsoft store, I say that was the worst thing they could have done. Why? Number one, because the designs they're copying were already old Apple. That was Apple circa 2012. That's not even Apple today. Second of all, it's so disingenuous. It's not interesting. We've, you know, if I want that sensibility, I go to the original. So I really encourage the, the, these smaller businesses to double down, however imperfect it is, on what is authentically your expression and bring it into the store because that's what people will emotionally connect with, just like that's what people connect with in human form. What's an example of, of a company that has been doing well on that front? Oh, I mean, I really think like it's a addressing big company the, now. The, I mean, I'll, I'll give big companies because the names are also recognizable, but like a Trader Joe. Trader mm. Joe didn't study Wegmans or Whole Foods and say, you know, mm. this is the departments that they're winning and this is the marketing campaign that put them on the map and made them, you know, commanding of a much bigger marketplace or newer territory than we have. They just said, we, this is what we are. And, and, and Trader Joe's a big business, but it didn't start as a big business. It started, there was a Joe. Uh, he, he died in the last year and I read his obituary and I was quite touched by it. And I thought, you know, you still feel, and I never met him. I never, I never went to the original Trader Joe's store, but the point- he went is, to, He's a Stanford grad. By he's the way. A, it, he's the Stanford a, MBA. Oh, he is. Stanford, but yeah. I gotta believe, I gotta believe that his aesthetic is very in tune, that the original store didn't feel all that different than all the other stores that we now see under that banner. That's and it's quite, quite mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great customer experience. It's very mm -hmm. different. We shop there every week, <laughs> almost. And not, yeah. what, what's important there is that they, it's a great employee experience too. Mm -hmm. Employees mm -hmm. are happy. I don't know another supermarket mm -hmm. where employees genuinely enjoy their job. I, and, mm -hmm. and I don't know that they enjoy their job because they tell me. I know mm -hmm. it because I see their smile on their face. And I've been to many mm -hmm. different Trader Joe's. And one thing companies do wrong is they think they treat their business as a bit of a theater where there's a stage and the stage is what the customer mm -hmm. sees. And then everything behind the stage is another story altogether. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of this, when the curtain goes down, who cares what you express or how you express it and how this all looks. And I think a good company is one um, where the way you treat your people, whether they are employees, whether they are um, your uh, cleaning staff, uh, your CEO, your customer, your vendors, 
you know, your marketing agency, that there has to be a consistency, that value with the, the, the value system, which is what you're expressing through aesthetics, mm -hmm. is a value mm -hmm. system that has to be true to how you run everything. It can't mm -hmm. just be used for design. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like a, a person. You have to be congruent as exactly. a whole being rather than just this part versus that part. Um, so what do you think would make businesses more aware of and value aesthetics? By the way, the Trader Joe's story um, makes me think that you know, they may not have thought of their strategy as an aesthetic strategy. They, many companies probably do not um, think of them, you know, think of it through, through the uh, aesthetic lens, but, um, but they have exemplified, you know, uh, uh, yeah, did, did the well best, on their... The best yeah. strategies are not developed as aesthetic strategies. They're developed as, um, as honest ones. It's just mm -hmm. an expression of what you believe and how you believe it. It's a voice, mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, that to me, I think you're absolutely right. I, you know, I have a whole section in the book where I talk about brand codes and mm -hmm. brand codes are these markers of the brand, like right. McDonald's double M, you know, and uh, it could be a tune. It could be anything that we kind of connect the Chanel double C and so forth. None of them were developed because they were supposed to be codes. They were part mm -hmm. of the kind of the archive of, of the company's mm -hmm. history. And they, you know, some clever people, whether they were the founders or designers or marketing found ways to repurpose them and make them mm -hmm. iconic over time. Um, Financial Times, when it was first uh, produced, first published, um, was in London and it was competing with um, <clears throat> a local paper. And it had two issues. Number one, it was financially strapped. And number two, uh, that it wanted to differentiate itself from the other uh, business uh, newspaper that came out of London. And so they decided um, to keep that sort of salmon pink tone. It was actually, the first uh, reason was because it was quite expensive to bleach the paper. Mm. And so it was a way for them to save money to not have to bleach mm. it. And then secondly, they said, plus it will make us feel different than our mm. arch competitor. Flash forward almost hundred, more than a hundred years now. It is more expensive today for the Financial Times to produce that color on its paper. It would be cheaper for them to go with just neutral white. But they, it has become such a powerful code. I you can know exactly, you know, exactly, immediately. That's, that's I can be a hundred feet away from someone. If they're reading it, I don't need to see anything. I don't need to see the font. I know it's the Financial Times. And, and I, go even further, I have certain assumptions about that person 100 feet away who's reading a Financial Times. He or she is sophisticated, is worldly, uh, obviously cares about the world of business. I mean, there's certain associations, they're powerful, but my point being, it didn't start as a code. Um, codes become that over time, and once they are codes, they're very valuable. That's goodwill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so going back to that question, how, what do you think will make companies be more conscious of it and, and cultivate well, more and value it more? First of all, um, if I had been around and been proselytizing all of this 40 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, nothing I would have said would have changed the course of business history. Mm -hmm. uh, we're in a different moment in time. Mm -hmm. And I think most companies, while they may or may not, or let's just say their CEOs may or may not believe that I have the answer, and I may or may not, but I think for many I do, <laughs> 
One thing they do know for sure is that the way they've operated for decades doesn't work anymore. Mm. The, you know, just having a reputation is not a, a, um, a, a pass to market leadership. So scale and equity no longer go together. We see that in many industries. Just having more resources, well, sometimes that becomes diseconomies of scale because there's too much complexity, which is why Tesla is worth so much more than Ford, right? Why is Tesla, which sells a fraction of the cars of Ford or GM, why is it worth so much? Well, because it didn't have any of the legacy issues. It's actually a, a good example of diseconomies of scale. So it could be focused. Innovation, it's, there's not an industry that I can think of other than some maybe very few commodities that isn't affected by the technological advances, but you can't really win on technology up to, it's a bit like biotech or pharmaceutical. You can get a patent, it can, close, it can give you a big lead, but eventually, eventually, it might be 10 years, or, but eventually that it narrows. In fact, as you get closer every year, it'll narrow. Um, so how do you win? Well, you don't win on any of the toolkits, you know, that we've been taught in, you know, in your case in Stanford and mine at Horton. Um, they don't make, they, they are, you, now you can't avoid them because to be a big business, you still have to have a strong supply chain. You still have to use big data. You still have to, you know, have financial controls. All of that is to me, the price of entry, but you win on, um, I think on connecting with people in a way that is much harder to replicate. You win on, um, on, on delighting people in a way that takes empathy and takes um, creativity and imagination. You win on differentiation, which is and not originality, just- originality. All of that. Mm -hmm. So if, and, and, and there may be other paths to originality, you know, certainly there's a burgeoning field around innovation. But this one is so gettable, right? To me, it's really hard. Like I know people working on um, artificial intelligence or on, um, you know, and, and they'll, they'll, there'll be some winners, kind of like the California gold rush, but you'll have a lot of people who go there because that's the next frontier and they'll come away empty, em empty handed, a lot of people. Because it's really hard to get that stuff right. And it takes a long time. And even when you get it right, I mean, think of internet 1.0 right? It takes time for, for the world to adapt. So I'm not saying that that doesn't need to keep going on. But what I'm talking about is almost catching up with where the world is. Mm -hmm. The world is looking for these experiences already, and so few companies do it well. And that mm -hmm. is why when companies do it well, they're over-rewarded, mm -hmm. in my mind. So why, why is Apple one of the most valuable companies in the world? It doesn't, it's computers don't have more microprocessing power than, you know, it's direct competitors. They, and there are competitors when it comes to technology have a number of other benefits and advantages, but what they do well puts them in a league of their own in their category. So mm -hmm. I go back to what, why do I, why do I think people will change now? Because they don't have a choice not to. Mm. Number two, uh, how does it get, how, how does it, how does it get socialized and executed? Well, my biggest frustration, I was working and still am to some extent with one of the biggest old automotive companies. And I started, I was brought in by a senior most person in the company. 
And there was a variety of reasons that they wanted to rethink of the car, not least of which because of this competitive issue that you know, they don't know how to get their arms around with the EVs. But after a few iterations, my initiative sort of started to fall further into some functional trap where, well, let's work within product vehicle, but then there's a market research consumer insights team. And, then, and what I realized is if the CEO and the CMO and anyone else who has a seat at that top table isn't owning these kind of initiatives, it's, it's lip service. It's lip service. If, if I were having a um, investor meeting, if I were the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and I had a supply chain issue, I wouldn't call in my chief operating officer and say, you know, can you talk to the analysts about that? I would feel as the CEO, if that were a critical issue, parts or manufacturing, that I have to speak to it because it's just that fundamental to my business, even though I have a whole team of people who have civil engineering backgrounds and so forth. So why is it if I were at an analyst meeting and there was a question about um, the uh, emotional resonance of your customer experience, would I not feel I, have, I need the same grasp, the same ownership, the same insight on that topic? Because if you believe what I'm saying, that this is the differentiator, it cannot be outsourced. And so I would like to see, you know, they, they talk a lot about diversity in, on the boardroom, diversity in executive management, great. But the challenge I give is it's always diversity in terms of color of skin, of gender, of sexual <laughs> preference. But why don't we have any... Um, why don't we have any artists or cultural leaders sitting on corporate? Thank board? you. I have been wanting to ask that question forever. <laughs> I mean, and I understand yes. if, if I had a board of 12, even mm -hmm. at Neiman Marcus, mm -hmm. I don't, I can't afford to have eight people coming from museums. Clearly this is, but Neiman Marcus is a cultural experience. It is connecting its customer to that zeitgeist in this case um, around fashion and style that is more connected you could argue to culture than it is to silicon valley but mm -hmm. why do we prioritize having a technologist on the board mm -hmm. so my mm -hmm. point being um, that to me would be diversity right. and that exactly. would be a winning formula right and it's not even necessarily a technologist the artist but person it's different way of thinking mm -hmm. um, to bring to that's the right. table that's right, right. that's yeah. right yeah that's mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and it's and a, and a sensitivity um, a sensitivity to the way people um, operate and, um, and some of these other components that, you know, whether we like it or not, business has moved in. Business is so much more than commerce in this day and age. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've talked much about businesses. Bring it back to, to the personal level. So, so you make this, you know, great observation, which I share as well, this unnatural separation between the personal and the professional in the world of business and probably in many other you know, trade and professional worlds as, as well. I haven't felt as much because as an entrepreneur, you know, the, the professional and personal lives tend to blend, bleed into each other. But I, I have, you, know, you certainly have inspired me to be more intentional in terms of how I dress. I, I, do, I do dress up for occasions 
um, and I put on some makeup for you today, but uh, <laughs> in my day-to-day -day life, I have not been paying much attention to how I, how I, how I dress and how I appear, and um, it doesn't help uh, to live in California where people tend to be more casual, and certainly the, the pandemic has made it even worse. <laughs> But what would you um, say to people who either don't think about it or even are skeptical, skeptical and even averse to yeah. the concept of, of aesthetics? And, you know, they would think I am for work ethics, not for aesthetics. Well, what would you say to yeah. them? Why aesthetics matter for for our lives, both personally yeah. and professionally? Well, the first thing is, as you, you might remember, there's a section, a small section in the book on aesthetics and ethics. So I do not believe aesthetics works in the absence of ethics. There are companies um, like Juul is the example I use, the e-cigarette company that used aesthetics very effectively, but in, in my opinion, an unethical way. And it caught up with them. At their peak, they were valued at 40 billion and Altria took a big position. Today, they're valued at probably a 20th of that. So my point being, um, eventually, if your uh, aesthetic representation doesn't isn't married with um, with an, an, an authentic and appealing point of view, it won't work. Point number one. Point number two. When I think of personal aesthetics, I don't think of style in the sense of you know I got to read Vogue magazine or you know, the Rob report and figure out how to project myself as a serious person. I think it's as much as anything about getting into your, to the, the fullest expression of who you are underneath. So let's take Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, whether he would ever talk about it or not, and of course I think he would not, has a very strong aesthetic and his aesthetic works for him supremely well. And, and his aesthetic is not just the disheveled hair and the glasses that you know haven't probably changed in 40 years, been oversized, falling down the nose in a shabby suit, and the fact that he drives, you know, I don't know what he drives, Subaru, I don't know what he drives, a practical car. Um, he lives his beliefs and it gives him a credibility and an appeal and a, a sort of folksy accessibility that is so unusual in high finance that he, even before he had the stellar performance we know he has today, because in this case, success breeds success. The more money you have to invest with, the more you can actually turn those results and so forth. So it's really been a, a virtuous cycle for him, but he's been so consistent and so clear and so, um, uh, I was so coherent and original and original. Um, and I used to always say that um, I worked at the Carlisle Group. I was a, a partner for a period of years, and I wrote a little bit about this as well. The one of the three founders of Carlisle is a guy named David Rubenstein. And if you see him, his image, and this is one of the wealthiest men in the country, um, but he his archetype is the exact opposite of a Henry Kravis. Both of them have the same business model. They raise money from many of the same pension funds and you know, other high net worths. They pursue the same deals. So, and they both are very successful. So not one is more uh, effective than the other. They're both effective because their demeanor and their expression is true to what they believe. 
When you go into to, to Henry Kravis's office, it is dripping with art. It's very um, imposing. You know, he's got a sort of dark wood walls. It's it it feels like you would imagine like a rapper baron, you know, of the early twentieth century. <laughs> um, and he himself, you know, was very tailored suits, um, finest material, and Laura Piana, and everything about him is studied and refined and expensive. David, he's the son of a postal worker and he's proud of it. And he fell into this business. He worked in the Carter administration in the seventies. He's very creative, but he's hokey and he's sort of socially awkward. And it, it's part of his appeal. He's got a good sense of humor. You know, he too, like Warren has the glasses down the nose, um, not at all aware of how shabby the suits are. And there are investors who would rather go with David because they say my money is going into the deals and, and not into his fancy offices, which are very unfancy. And there are others who say I'd rather invest with, with Kravis because that is what success looks and feels like to me. And that's my aspiration. Mm. So my point is, what, uh, there is no such thing as good taste. What there is such a thing as your taste. Yeah. And where I think people struggle is when they either follow formula, which for example, when I came into the corporate world, there was a formula and it was not considered professional for a woman to, for example, wear as low cut a neckline as I have right now, or as dangly an earring as I have right now. Um, I don't work in a corporate environment anymore, but I wear the dangling earrings today. I don't live by other people's rules. And if I'm in a company that is uncomfortable by my expression, I'm in the wrong company. Well, As that's one... partly why I, I got fed up with corporate world <laughs> very quickly. But you <laughs> had the fortitude, you know, <laughs> and I guess the self-honesty to say, this is why I can't stay. Most people end up complying and it's a form of oppression. It's a form of oppression and they do it out of fear. They do it because they, you know, can't really envision how to be otherwise. You know, from a very young age in our schools, we're taught that to succeed is to follow the rules. Um, and schools are very rule bound. Um, learning is very rule bound. And there is a purpose. I mean, if I was gonna be, um, you know, a train conductor, I better follow the rules. A pilot has to follow the rules. It doesn't have to be creative, but how many jobs are out there where you'd be better off if you could be yourself? And how much more fun would you have too? Yeah, I certainly would like to have more fun. I've been paying more attention to cultivating inner beauty, but there's this other side that I, that I, um, uh, I appreciate, but I have not paid enough attention to. So Never I will today. follow through to have Never this. Today. And start in small ways. I mean, one of the reasons I started uh, the platform I mentioned earlier, Aesthetic Intelligence Labs, yeah. is I wanted to give um, a community of people who are interested, who are not getting their MBA at Columbia or at Harvard, but who do work in the real world and who mm -hmm. do need to express themselves and do have ideas that you know they want a canvas to showcase. And I to give them tools. Yeah. for doing really simple things, really simple things, because as I said, you're not gonna be taught this, this kind of um, uh, you know, methodology in a traditional school. Um, in fact, I don't think anyone else in the world is teaching us that. <laughs> so I've made it my mission to not just proselytize, but actually to provide a platform where people can learn. 
mm-hmm. A point you make in the uh, book is that uh, aesthetics can be can be uh, cultivated. An encouraging uh, yeah. point. A hundred percent of the yeah. population has more yeah. capacity than they use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, um, it's been delightful to talk to you, Pauline, and okay, um, um, uh, best of luck with yours. So this is the, the class coming up on the 1st of June. Is this your debut or is it, uh, have no. you run it before? No, I've been doing it. This will be my uh, fourth cohort. I've been oh, doing wow. it before. So I launched it in uh, actually June of uh, 2021. Every mm-hmm. quarter we have a new cohort. It is self-paced, mm-hmm. so people don't have to work mm-hmm. alongside others, but mm-hmm. it's a three month period so that we can sort of give people the various exercises and, um, and learnings in sort of chunk, bite size. Mm-hmm. We recognize that most people are working, they're busy, Mm-hmm. They, you know, have to do this on their own time. We also have participants from around the world. I have 10 people coming into the next cohort that are from the, U- they're re- refugees from the Ukraine. I put oh, a wow. scholarship for them because mm-hmm. they, um, they had expressed interest and really couldn't afford to join. And I said, and what, what shocked me, by the way, is mm-hmm. it was one woman who reached out. She said, I'm mm-hmm. living in Indonesia. My family is still in Ukraine. It's a terrible mm-hmm. time. I would mm-hmm. love to take the course. I can't afford it. I said to her, we'll put aside 10 seats, um, help us spread the word. Mm. And in a matter of days, we had 100 applications. Um, So we had to pick 10 and we did a few things for the 90 who didn't make it in. So my point being, we have um, participants from around the world, Mm. uh, from Asia, from South America, from Mm. uh, Central Europe. And um, and, uh, and it really, one of my surprises, it was a pleasant surprise, is how powerful the community piece is. Mm-hmm. So there's a community platform, but people learn not in a vacuum or in isolation, they learn mm-hmm. through the interaction and seeing each other and supporting each other. Together. It's become a big piece of this uh, platform. Mm. How uplifting. I can have another conversation just on that <laughs> with you. Well, I hope you'll but... join us. I hope you'll join us. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I will let you go to get started thank on your you. Memorial Day. One, uh, once again, thank you so much um, thank you. Thank for you. spending really this lovely. time with lovely. me. And yeah, I would love to uh, stay in touch and uh, to hear what, uh, see how your, your, your work um, develops. And good luck with the podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay.